For the ones finding new ways to ensure the job always gets done. For the ones wearing many hats. For the ones who are hands-on, even from far away. And the ones keeping business moving forward. We are Granger, Offering supplies and solutions for every industry. With 24-7 support and experienced staff at over 250 local branches. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Welcome to the podcast. This is Who Killed Teresa, and I'm your host, John Allure. And last night, the improbable possible happened. I uh, I did a live performance of uh, Bad Dream House, the episode, I think it's eight, that chronicles the <clears throat> the house my um, wife Elizabeth and I bought in the early two thousands that had a had a dead body on it. And, uh, I wasn't really sure how this this was going to go. Um, a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainty, but it it went really 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 well, um, and I recorded it. Um, I, I had my laptop, but it's a new laptop and I, I, I got locked out of the laptop. I didn't know the password. So I, I ended up recording it on my uh, cell phone, but the quality is pretty good. So uh, what I'm going to do is today is I'm going to, I'm going to play that live podcast because, um, and, and if you've heard it before, I can tell you, 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 you really haven't heard it because there's a whole lot that I left out. Uh, it's about an hour and 10 minutes performance. And I've never really done that before, right? I mean, for the last year, I've really been in front of a microphone alone. So this was, an, and, and, and originally we were going to, uh, you know, it was just going to be me sitting in a chair telling this story. But um, we, we very quickly, when I say we, there's a local theater company here in Raleigh, North Carolina, called Honest Pint Theater. Uh, friends, David Henderson and uh, Susanna Hoff, um, who needed quickly needed some content. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. And we, so we quickly improvised. And I, I was going to be sitting on my ass for the whole thing. But, uh, uh, you know, we ran it once and we decided that, that that wasn't such a good idea. So we put it on its feet. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it was a kick. It was a, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I certainly had intentions in mind of, of potentially doing this again, this performance and doing it multiple times and in different venues. That's kind of the goal in the back of my mind. Um, but to give you a, a, a setup on that, so I know I know David and Susanna, they, they'll hear you, I mean, you'll hear them at the beginning of the, they'll introduce the show. It was done at a performance space called uh, Sonorous Road on Hillsborough uh, Drive Avenue Road 
in Raleigh, relatively new performance space, Saturday night, um, February 10th. And, and as, as David says in his introduction, you know, it's, it's hard to get an audience out on any given night. You're competing with so much uh, stuff. Um, we had about, uh, I guess, about 40 people. And, and, and actually, that's really, really good for, for an event that um, was thrown together at the last, the last minute. Mostly of people that... Uh, uh, People I didn't know, but also people who knew me um, through theater around uh, what we call the research, the triangle, the research triangle in uh, in Chapel Hill, Raleigh, Durham. That's the triangle of cities that they talk about. So it was it, it was good. So, so you know some some friendly, familiar faces, and then and some unknowns. Um, and uh, a, a couple of things I want to clear up, you know, when you thread the needle of a performance, it's it's interesting. Um, I said, to, Susanna, Susanna provided all the music, which is fantastic. I, I didn't even I didn't give her I just gave her a complete license. I said, just do what you do, because she's really magical with music. Um, and she chose the greatest stuff, right? The, um, Murder by Numbers and stone cold crazy off my what i consider to be the best queen album sheer heart attack nico case things like this um because i said to her you know when i'm doing a podcast i'll often go up on the lines and that's where i'll pause or i'll insert some music or something so let's just build some of those in so since i won't have the opportunity to hit pause we'll will will provide a pause where I can collect my thoughts. I can go back. I can kind of review the the yellow scribbler notepad of 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 things. But inevitably when you're telling these things, things, you know, if you're you're doing a performance for an hour and 10 minutes, things are going to get dropped. So a couple of things I want to address before we get going that got dropped. Uh the first thing is this. Yes, the lump in the bed was Andrew Dalzell. And that's all I saw. I saw this guy turn over in this this heap of hair. It was the age of goth. So, you know, he, he kind of looked like a combination of Billy Corbin and Marilyn Manson or something. But I never really knew what, what Andrew Dalzell looked like. The second thing is that... The thing that I was getting at, I didn't get to tie this, but I talk in the beginning about how the French cursed the heavens. And what I wanted to tie that with was at the end where I talk about fortune or fate. Um, And what I wanted to say, I wanted to address um, the Greeks and Aeschylus and uh, the play Oedipus, Oedipus Rex, and the idea that the Greeks didn't really believe in fate, right? Um, I, I, I'm not going to be able to express this um, eloquently. Uh, the local playwright, um, Ian fin- Finley, addresses this beautifully. Um, but, but the idea is that Oedipus couldn't, couldn't talk his way or atone for, for anything uh, that was about to unfold, uh, it, it was going to happen regardless. His 
destiny was predetermined by the gods even before he was born. And that's kind of the way the Greeks thought. And, and that is a cold, hard truth and a way of looking at the, the, the universe that I think is unique. Um, you know, the, I guess the last thing I want to address is uh, something I left out. Um, uh, November 3rd, 2003 was the anniversary of my sister's death. And I, and I happened to be on that date in Ottawa, Canada. I was, I was on the floor of uh, Justice Canada's uh, victims, their first, what they purported to be victims conference to which they neglected to invite any victims. <laughs> and the plenary had just happened and it was a Q&A period and Pierre, Pierre Boisvenu and I were at opposite ends of the conference hall at the microphones where you could address questions and of course Pierre got up in French and said uh, uh, I'm Pierre Boisvenu no one speaks for Julie my dead daughter I speak for Julie says this in French and and then I give of course the, the response in English I'm John Allure um, I'm a victim no one speaks for Teresa uh, you have not represented her voice here at this conference you're just a bunch of feds and provincial hangers-on in NGOs. Uh, shortly after that, I was interviewed on camera, and then I, I got a, a phone call from Elizabeth, my wife, saying she had gone into labor with our third and f our, our, our baby child, and it said I couldn't come home because um, I was doing this. And shortly after that, she said, you know, when I was home... She said, when does this end? And I said, uh, it doesn't. So the point I, I wanted to make at the end of the podcast that I thought was important um, because of the way the entire uh, performance was framed is that um, these events cost me my marriage. I think everyone knows, I mean, we've done 50 or so episodes. I think people who listen to the podcast realize that, but I don't think people who saw the performance quite grasp uh, the depth of that, that these events, and the trauma and uh, the work um, is real and it, it, it has consequence. So, with that cheery news, um, and I'll finally say, some people had sort of said, you know, why don't you talk about your sister more? You, you know, who was she? And what was she? And I, I just feel it's not that important. You know, Teresa, Teresa was like five foot five, a uh, hundred and nothing pounds. You know, her nickname was Tweezers. She was so skinny. Um... She was bright, brilliant, funny. She was like every victim we've talked about. She stands in for them all. I've never, I've never heard any of them be described in any way other than that they are fully unique individuals. So that's why, because I don't think it's necessary. We all, we all know that. She's, 
she's standing in for for humanity um, and that's that's is the reason why I, I don't delve into that too much because I think it's self-evident so with with that I'm, I'm gonna now pretty much play the tape raw of the performance of Bad Dream House uh, as I say it was recorded on an iPhone uh, make of it uh, what you will but uh, here we go thank you for listening So I think I think I uh, shook most of your hands coming in um, the door. I might have missed a few, but.
But um, that's, that's an old um, trick I actually, I, I learned from a friend of mine um, in Montreal named Pierre Boisvenu. And Pierre uh, um, is, had the misfortune of having his daughter murdered when she was 19. And then approximately two years after his, uh, Julie was murdered, his second daughter, his only other daughter, died in a car accident. Um, and Pierre, Pierre has been my mentor and sort of showed me a lot of things. And, and this trick I learned, he was doing a lecture at the Université de, de Montréal in Montreal um, to a bunch of kind of hardline criminologists. Um, and he was coming in to talk about victims' advocacy. Uh, so, and kind of a rough crowd. Criminology, they, they kind of feel like, you know what? Our lives would be perfect if we didn't have to deal with the fucking victims, right? <laughs> it's like, there's such a pain in the ass. And we are. We're, 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 quite, a, a, we're quite a handful. Um, but as, you know, these students were coming in, he would shake every one of their hands. And I pulled him aside. I said, Pierre, why do you do that? And he says, I want to get their energy. I want to capture that energy because I, I need to persuade them of something. And sure enough, by the time that lecture was over, he took some of these hard customers and he, he persuaded them. In, um, it's funny. In the French language, when you swear, you, you, you kind of, you swear to God, you swear to the heavens, right? And it's this weird thing. It's, it's a, like a Caroline tabernacle, tabernacle, vende. It's really weird. And what it, what it is, is you're, you're swearing against the church. Carlis means chalice, cup of Christ. Tabernacle means tabernacle. Sacre bleu, sacred blue, it's Virgin Mary. So it's a cry, right, to the church and to the heavens. We're, we just swear against the body, right? Suck my this, kiss my that, <laughs> fuck this, you know, it's all of this. But the, the, the French, like, they really mean it. <clears throat> um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell, uh, tell this story that that started it, um, I wrote it actually years ago as a blog post when we used to call them blogs, called um, A Bad Dream House. And then I, I've, done a, I've done a podcast of it as well. Um, but I guess to frame it, earlier this week, um, this guy uh, in Canada contacted me, he emailed me. And he said, um, uh, Mr. Allure, um, I've seen like your, you know, your website and see you, you were familiar with a series of cold cases from, from Quebec um, in the 1970s that I'm interested in. I'm going to be in Montreal on March 29th. Uh, I'd like to sit down and have an interview with you, um, to which I said, um, I'm sorry, but I don't, I don't live in Montreal. I live in North Carolina. And, um, and anyway, I, I, I kind of knew this guy anyway. He, um, he wrote this book, you know, and it's not really a book anyway. It's a pamphlet, like a pamphlet, and it's, it's widely considered to be plagiarized. And, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he's a self-professed criminologist. Um, 
uh, I, I went to his website and went to his podcast and the first thing that put me off is the, the graphic is like this Raymond Chandler cover with a guy in a trench coat and fedora and smoke and I'm like, ah, oh, really? And then, you know, I start listening to it and it starts with the spooky synthesizer and I'm like, no, 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 you know. And they all do, you know, the, the whole true crime you know, industry is, is like this, right? It's, you have a, you know, cold case Connecticut or <laughs> Mississippi murder or southern fried crime and this kind of thing. And, and, and anybody who really trucks in that game knows, knows that if, if, if you've lived through some of this, you wouldn't act that way because that's not what it's like. These are, a bunch, these are a bunch of wannabe people, web sleuths, who this stuff hasn't really touched Touch them. So Bad Dream House, we talked about it. I was going to do a podcast, a live podcast. It didn't really work. Um, so I decided, you know, let's, let's just take a shot at it and perform it. So I'm going I'm to perform it for you tonight. Now, Bad Dream House, most of you, are, I, know, I know Dan knows this, where that title comes from. It's a, it's a Simpsons episode, right? It's... it's if you say so. <laughs> I say so. So the first season of The Simpsons had a trilogy of uh, terror. It was three episodes. The first one was a riff on The Raven. The third one is the first time we're introduced to Kodos and Kang. But the middle one is Bad Dream House. And it's a story of when Homer, he buys a, he buys a house that turns out to be on the grounds of an Indian burial ground. Um, and I, I thought, that, well, that's a, that's a great title. Let's, but, but even that is riffing on something, right? Because what that is re- referencing is, of course, um, uh, the, the original Amityville Horror is based on that premise. Uh, Poltergeist is based, on, is based on that premise. So that's where that comes from. So before we get into it, I, I want to just explain to you, um, I don't know if it's a philosophy or, or what it is, but it's, it's, it's a belief that I hold about the universe, about the way time works. I think on the, on the one hand, we have coincidence, and then on the other hand, we have causality. And on the coincidence side, these, these are people who, who are stopped here who go, shit happens. Just, it's not connected. There's nothing. And then on the causality side, right, it's like everything is connected. You have conspiratory theorists living here and all that. I kind of live in the middle in this area here where I kind of believe that... Um, with time, things in the past are foretelling events in the future. Um, they're all kind of blending. They're resonating. They're reverberating. There's feedback from the, pa- from the past and, and from the future. And that they, we just kind of hover in this little area here. And it's an area that I call synchronistic or people would consider synchronistic. And I always think of it as... You know, sometimes life events, they're, they're a little more than coincidence, but a little less than, than causal, that, that everything is connected. So, with that, um, bad dream house. So, my narrative, I think a lot of people could understand it like this. If you, if you, how did I get to North Carolina? Well, it goes like this on a map. I started in Toronto. I was in Toronto, and uh, I went to the University of Toronto and did a lot of theater. Wanted to learn a whole lot more, so went to conservatory in New York City. 
from New York City after that. I kind of fucked around in regional theater for a while. Went back to Toronto to do film and television. Thought I was ready for the big time. Went to L.A. Got my ass kicked in L.A. Um, and decided, you know, to make some decisions. So uh, talked to, to my wife, Elizabeth. Along the way, I met Elizabeth. And um, she said, why don't you give North Carolina a try? You know, I think, I think you really like it. We had a, we had a young family at this time. Um, Amelia was, I think, just one or two. She was, have, have you heard the, the Revisionist History podcast, uh, Carlos Can't Read? You know that, that one? Well, that, that's the school that Amelia was zoned to go to. So we were not going to stay in L.A., so she said, come, come to North Carolina. It's, it's great. My, uh, my mother is working with this woman whose husband is a director. And he, he gave up everything in Chicago. And he's now directing here. Tons of film in Wilmington. You know what I'm talking about, right? So I sold on this. I said, okay, it won't be that bad. So we packed our bags and we moved to North Carolina for about... Um, I'd say a year, year and a half, we lived in Saxville Hall. Um, and then finally, um, you know, it was time to, to settle down, uh, to, to buy a house. So we started house hunting, uh, looking for a place. Uh, Elizabeth found a place in a, in a development called Robin Road. And, and uh, it's uh, the Robin Wood development. If you're driving up 55... You go past Carborough Plaza, you get to the Exxon station, you turn left, Robin, Robin uh, Wood development is in there. And um, so uh, she says to me, she says, I, I think I found a real nice house. Will you, <coughs> you want to come and look at it? And I said, absolutely, I'll come and look at it. So I meet her after work. We drive up um, and immediately... The, it's, it's, it's not feeling great to me. I'm, I'm looking at it, and there's this, there's this house kind of on a hill in a wooded area, um, lots of forests, um, and it's, it's like two A-frames put together, right? Um, but it's ominous. You kind of go down this gravel driveway and then up and crest, and it, it kind of looks like, you know, like a miniature version of the hotel in the... Um, the shiny. It just did. So we're driving up, and I'm like, well, that's weird. And, and we get to the threshold, and, you know, there's the, like the little lockbox where you have to take the key out and all that. And as we're about to open the door, Elizabeth turns to me, and she says, you're just going to have to go with me on this one. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you open the door, and the first thing that, I, that strikes me is just the incredible aroma of dog piss that just comes wafting at me. I'm like, oh my God, what the hell? Like, like just ammonia to the max. Walk in the door. To the right, is there's this large master like living room. There's a wood fireplace, and there's all this shit. On the ground of debris, there's, there's mellow yellow cans, there's Diet Coke cans, there's food containers, pizza boxes. I'm, I'm not kidding. Like, up to here, you'd have to kind of like this in order to go through it. There is a Christmas wreath over the fireplace. 
It's March 31st. There are weapons, you know, nunchucks and knives and swords and the stars, you know, all of that. The floor, the, the floor is absolutely riddled with knife holes. Like, like somebody just like, or, you know, just throwing it like this. There's all this, like, porn anime on the walls. Somebody had drawn, there's, there's like a statue of a Japanese samurai warrior about this high. There's a, there's a statue of, like, Boba Fett from Star Wars. There's, there's like, an audio console just filled with porn in it. And I'm thinking, what the hell? It, you know, it, it was like detritus, right? And, and, and then, you know, I just thought this week... In Night Alive, and some of you saw that play, um, the opening is described, they describe Tommy and Doc's room as just being filled with detritus. And if anybody saw that play, there was so much shit of food cartons and stuff. It took us, it took us like an hour every night to restore that set to the, the state of detritus. Um, this would have taken 10 hours to, to construct this, this nightmare. And it got me thinking that detritus, you know, that word, I didn't know what that word meant, that it meant de- debris. Um, in French, actually, it's, it can be used for remains, human remains. I've heard it used, detritus is a woman named Melanie Cabet. She was described as her detritus, her remains. Susanna brought up to me that it can also mean star stuff, something ethereal of, of, of the heavens. So that room, there's, a, there's an old Christmas tree out on the deck, right? It's like rotting, it's all red, you know, the red needles. Past like the, uh, the, the kitchen, which is that kind of like bright, bright, sun bright yellow and and, and like the navel orange, you know, all that's missing is like the avocado appliances, that kind of thing. And suddenly we like, we hear this music and we think someone is, is, is actually living here. <laughs> so we start like walking down this, this hallway and the first thing we pass is like this closet and the closet doors off the hinge going a little further and the and the like the floor, all the carpet is ripped up and it's just a it's it's just a wood flooring with dog piss stains, you know. Get to the first bedroom, um, which was gonna be Elizabeth was pregnant. It was gonna be the baby's room, right? And and and, and Elizabeth like at that time had like this Betty Page haircut and so she's pregnant and getting this like Rosemary's baby feeling about the, the whole thing, <laughs> right? Because you're feeling really vulnerable and you don't know what you're, you're in for. So past the baby's room and again, not only is the carpet ripped up, but there's like in the ply board there's a massive hole, right? And all around the, the periphery of it, it's stained red and brown. Um, Keep going. You pass the, there's a little laundry room. Come to the, the end of the hall and there's a, there's a door. 
and it's just open a crack. And in the door, the, the, the door is riddled with, with holes, right? Like, right? Right? So, and I'm like, what is this? So I, I get to the door, and I just with, just with my fingers, I just push it like this. And like in, in this bed, sitting there, it's, it's like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I see this lump. And all of a sudden, the lump does this. Like that, and I like I do like this, <laughs> like you know, like David Garrick, right in Hamlet. And I do the Garrick thing. Oh, knock over the chair. Oh, jeez, like this, you know. Elizabeth is behind me, you know. We're, we're like this. Continue on past the bed, bathroom. You know, the bathroom is. You, you get it by now. It's like the fucking shit, you know. Go into the master bedroom. You know, there's a bed in the center, and at the very end of the house, there's a closet, and in the most improbable place, at the very back, there's this painting. Now, if you've heard the podcast or you've read about this, I've never included this, because I never understood the meaning until lately. There's a painting by a Canadian artist named Christopher Pratt. And, and I know everyone knows Chris Pratt. I mean, the lineage of, it's Canada, right? <laughs> you know, the art it goes from the group of seven to Emily Carr to Christopher Pratt. You know, that's really the history of Canadian art. And he's very famous for these, these paintings. He's very architectural. If you've ever seen the Newfoundland flag, he designed that. It's just a bunch of lines intersecting like this. And this, this painting is it's one of those ones with like a, a horizon and the focal point is either like a farmhouse or a, um, a lighthouse, something in the, different, in the distance and it's, all, it's very, all very mathematical, you know, calculated. And, and, and it's very recognizable to me because I'm, I'm Canadian and it seems odd because it shouldn't be this far south, this painting. And, and not only do I... Do I know this? I know Chris Pratt because I went to school with his kids, Barb and Ned. So it seemed really weird in all of this uncertainty and chaos to see this very specific, familiar thing. went alone to meet like the building inspector, the appraiser um, of the house and the guy was an ex-marine and he advised my wife to never come alone to that property again 
I do want to add that everything I'm saying is absolutely true. There's no embellishment. There's no playing around with the timing of it. This is exactly how it happened. When, when we closed on the house, none of the real estate people came because they were too terrified to go near the house. So then began like this, this long process of home renovation. And, and every guy goes through this, right, where you're, you're hanging out an awful lot at Lowe's on a Saturday morning, you know, taking those seminars. And, and I went through this period where I was spending, I had about six weeks to get rid of the remnants of the chaos and turn it into a home. And, you know, the pressure of a baby on the way and all that. So I, I, I essentially gutted the house, you know. Out came all the piss carpet and, you know, sanded the floor with the knife things and revarnished them, tore out the sinks, um, uh, tore out all the kitchen countertop, obviously tore out the red blood-stained plywood, replaced it, carpeted, carpeted the hall. Um, couldn't do the bathtub because um, it's a little bit beyond my... Um, my abilities, but I must say the bathtub too, all along the edge had like this and cutting. So that was Amelia's, you know, who's now like three. It was her bathtub. Um, so everything got um, replaced, and and then uh, you know Elizabeth and I would, you'd have to be um, pretty obtuse not to recognize this was strange. And we'd we'd tell we'd do little jokes to each other. Like I, I remember going out to Rototill because there was no lawn, so you had to churn it. And, to, and she, I said, I'm going out to work in the yard. She goes, okay, tell me if you find a dead body. <laughs> I mean, seriously, she did. And, and I'd, find, I f- I'd find things out there as well. Like um, I found, of course, more weaponry. Very specifically, I found like a, a, like a large hunting knife, really large, with brown all, all on the blade. Got rid of that. Um, <clears throat> dismembered Barbies, <laughs> many dismembered Barbies, and um, but basically g- replaced the entire contents and then and then moved in, and then about six weeks later, I was uh, uh, with the city, uh, city of Durham. I was at a council meeting in the afternoon, and I got a page from Elizabeth, so I phoned her. And she said, can you leave work and come home? Uh, the police just called, and they'd like to meet us at the house. Sure, do it. Leave work, drive up the driveway. As I'm driving up the driveway, I, I see who will later be revealed to me to be Carborough's chief of police, Carolyn Hutchinson, and the town attorney. And um, I walk up to the front door where they're all standing with Elizabeth, and they tell me that the former owner's son is the lead suspect in a missing persons case, and they'd like to check the premises for a body. Six weeks. Now, at this point, I should say, remember the trajectory of how I got here? Well, that's the theater narrative, but there was another narrative that I'm not telling you. And what, I, what I'm not telling you is before Toronto, I was born in Montreal. And um, when I was in Montreal, something very, very bad happened to me when I was 14. My 19-year-old big sister was at a small liberal arts college 
And she disappeared from the college in November. And five and a half months later, uh, her body was found. Now, when, when she disappeared, um, the, the school and the police, the authorities, um, made these kinds of excuses in the first 48 and thereafter. She's a runaway. She's gone to Calgary to visit her, her boyfriend. She's gone to, Vancouver, to, um, to Florida to, to visit some friends. That's the first thing. She's pregnant. <clears throat> she's pregnant and she's ashamed. So she's gone to a monastery, obviously. Despite the fact, you know, that there were no bags packed. Um, there was nothing of substance missing. Um, her, her purse was in her room. But the one that I loved the best was actually the, the, the school uh, official who said she was a lesbian and she went in hiding to places where lesbians go. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. Um, and then slowly what came into it was a, a suggestion of a, a possibly a, a drug mishap. It's 1978. She dabbled in drugs, pot, etc. Um, now, when the body was found, and she was none of those places, except where she was, which, which was a mile away from her campus dormitory, then, then there were more excuses made up. Police said, um, it's the drugs. There was LSD going around that night, um, acid, and she had an acid trip. She freaked out, you know, on, 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 on November 30th, or excuse me, November 3rd, you know, she had some kind of bad trip. She might have died in her bed. And then fellow students took her body, wrapped it in a blanket, put it in a car, drove it down to this creek where she was found, and put her in the water. Or she was out driving with these kids and freaked out on LSD, tore all her clothes off, insisted on getting out of the car, ran into this body of water and drowned herself. Or she was suicidal. She, she just simply, you know, she wandered down the road, this mile-long road in November in Quebec, tore off all her clothes, jumped in the water and died. Now, my parents were pretty persistent, but they're pretty private people, really. You know, my, my mother was like, avoid being in the papers at all costs. That was her philosophy. My father did all he could. There was talk of suing the school, but, but for what? We didn't really know how she died. It was very inconclusive. So we went to my grandfather. Um, for advice. And my grandfather, because of his experience, my grandfather had lost a brother in World War I at Vimy Ridge. He then lost his eldest son to influenza at 19. Now he's faced with losing a granddaughter. And his advice to my father was, you close the book, you move on. So that's, that's, what, that's what we did. We, as a family, we closed the book, we moved on. 
I was 14. It's very confusing. And there's a weird element to this. Uh, the week before Teresa uh, disappeared, she was in a local pub and came upon a palmist, a fortune teller. But back then they called it a palmist. And you see this some guy sitting in the back of this pub and she had her palm read. And I don't know all the details, but one of them was that he said, you come from a very close family, but something is about to happen to break that closeness. And, and that was it at, up to that point. It's very confusing, um, obviously filled with rage, just confusion. There's that line from, uh, from the Scottish play. Got to be careful here. <laughs> the Scottish play. Um, confusion now has made his masterpiece. Right? Just before Banquo comes in and he, not Banquo, you know who he is, kills the two kids. And I, that always kind of sticks with me. It's confused feelings of humiliation, feelings of rage. I remember 15 years after the event, I, um, because we kept it so quiet, 15 years after the event, I'm at a high school reunion with my brother um, and in Montreal. I'm tagging along. And there was only a year difference between my brother and my sister. She was 19, he was 18. We're at this high school reunion. We're there talking, schmoozing, and a bunch of people come up and they say, where's Teresa? she coming? And, you know, of course, you think in your head that everyone knows, but, of course, no one knows because you've never addressed it. You've, you've never talked about it. So I had received, three years later, a scholarship to McGill University. My father went to McGill. My brother went to McGill. His kids went to McGill. But there was no way in hell I was going to stay in Quebec um, and, and go to McGill. So I went to Toronto, and I thought that was far away enough. But it wasn't. So then I went to New York. That wasn't far away enough. Came back to Toronto. I was like, no, I'm not ready. Back. And, and Susanna said this the other day. She said it beautifully. You don't even know you're doing this, right? You don't even know that you're running, but you are. Get all the way to Los Angeles it was in Los Angeles that uh, things started to happen that were foretelling what was about to come. When I, when I, I went to L.A., um, the, the, the eve of the O.J. run, and found myself the next day on Gretna Green poking around that house um, with a friend, you know, being a sleuther. I, I don't really know why I was doing it. It was written up in, in the Los Angeles Times. Looky lose is from as far away as Toronto. Or, <laughs> um, you know, I go to the site where the Black Dahlia was found. You know, I'd do this. Um, I read um, James Elroy's book, My Dark Places, and was immediately taken with it. It's about the unresolved murder of his mother, and became enamored with Elroy. Met him several times at readings. And at one, I told him this story, and he took my copy of My Dark Places, and he's signing, he goes, she lives, baby, she lives. And that became the way that Elroy signed all of those books going forward, she lives. So I knew something was coming. So finally, you know, when I, when I finally decide to settle down, after all that roaming, 
you know, and finally decide to put down roots um, and establish myself with some sense of purpose after all that running, what were the odds that I would choose a house with a dead body on it? Well, it chose me. So the police are on the threshold. So now I need to tell you the story of Debbie Key and Andrew Dalzell. Um, Debbie Key lived in Carbo. She's 34 years old, five foot five, 115 pounds, reddish hair, a uh, bit of a party girl. Um, like to hang, you know, like to hang, go to Walnut Creek and hang out and play pool, all this kind of stuff. Um, and one night, she's in a bar in Carborough called Sticks and Stones, which is now Tyler's. That's what it is. And uh, she's sitting in the bar. She's drinking. There's a guy in the, in the corner drinking a Diet Coke. He's about 21 years old. Um, and he's, he's drawing in a sketchbook. And I thought I imagined this, but I read it in the paper today. He's drawing what are described as pornographic cartoons of women in this, in this sketchbook. Um, he goes up to the bar to where Debbie is. He offers to buy her a drink. Uh, shortly thereafter, they're seen back in the corner. Um, he's seated. She's giving him a neck massage. After that, uh, when, the, when Sticks and Stones closes, the bartender is leaving. He notices that it's about 2.30 in the morning, and, uh, and Debbie and what will turn out to be Andrew Dalzell are leaning up against his car, making out in, in the Bank of America parking lot, if you, know, if you know Carborough. The next morning, Debbie's car is found abandoned in the parking lot. The, the doors are unlocked, and her purse is sitting on the passenger side seat. And, of course, the immediate suspicion, because of Debbie's lifestyle, is that she ran away, she... F- did something wrong? She's there's nothing there's nothing afoul here whatsoever, and it takes the police about a, you know a good six months to get their act together, and to backtrack and realize that they need to find this young man who's sitting at the bar. They eventually do track him down. They track him down to 500 Robin Road. They. Establish Carbo Police establish contact with Dalzell. They ask him to come in for an interview. He says, absolutely, I'll be in in the morning. And of course, by the next morning, he's completely lawyered up and he's not coming. So the first thing the Carbo Police do is they impound his car. And they have the right to do this because they can establish connection that Debbie had been leaning against it. 
So they manage to impound the car. They send it to the SBI, State Bureau of Investigation. They dust it for DNA. So they find a pair of women's underwear in the car. Um, they, they test that. They can't establish that it's, it's Debbie's. So now they're, they're kind of at a stalemate, and they don't quite know what to do. They, they don't have probable cause to go inside the house, right? Because they can't establish, they don't really know that Debbie had, had been there, even though they suspect Debbie had been there. So what begins is a series of months and even years where periodically the police will drive by the house just to see what's going on. And one day, the, the chief of police, Carolyn Hutchinson, drives by and she sees a for sale sign. Next thing the police do is, it's pretty clever, they pose as potential buyers. Two cops, husband, you know, man and a woman, husband and wife. So they get to get inside the house, but they, you know, they can't go as far as they want. The, the wooded lot is about an acre back. They can't walk the entire um, periphery or interior of it. They believe Debbie has been buried there, um, but they, they don't have the right to do much more than snoop around as potential buyers. Uh, finally, one day, Carolyn Hutchinson, on her cruise, drives by, and in place of all the crap, she sees children's playground equipment, like my kids' playground equipment. That's when she makes the call, and here we are, and we're back in the spot, on the thresholds, and them saying, can we look for a dead body? Um, now, at this point, you know, obviously we completely freaked out. Um, what they wanted to do is they wanted to bring in a sniffer dog. Um, um, but the problem was <laughs> the sniffer dog that they wanted, there was like apparently only one in the southeast. It was like really, really popular and he was like, he was, he was in Memphis, and now he's working in Florida. And they're like, they're like, if you can just wait two weeks, we can bring him. And, and I, we're like, we're going out of our minds, right? So, so we said, oh, two weeks? They said, well, he's really good. I'm not kidding. You don't want to miss this one. Right? So, so fine, we, we, we wait. And then they sort of say to us, they say, oh, and by the way, you know, don't say anything about uh, um, because, you know, we don't want to tip him off and have him come back for something. Like, what? What are you talking about? Uh, you know, finally, y- you know, we couldn't even take it. We-, we fucked off to Carolina Beach one weekend, like the last weekend, because we didn't want to be there at all. And we got back on Sunday, and in desperation, I phoned the police, and I said, the was- dog was supposed to come on Tuesday. I phoned. I said, can, can he come Monday? <laughs> Well, Monday's his day off. <laughs> you know, he's got to do his laundry. He's got to make his meals for the week. He's got eight shows a week. Sunday's matinees. He's got two matinees. Come on. You just got to... So, fine, fine. We'll wait. We'll wait till Tuesday. Tuesday comes. This entourage pulls up. There is... Um, first of all, the, the, the Carborough police come, come and... They are dressed in SWAT fatigues, you know. And um, Carolyn Hutchinson kind of, she kind of looked like a pixie. And then there was this guy named John Lau who looked like Tom Selleck. And uh, Booker looked like something from the Dukes of Hazard or something. Like, I think he had a mullet. And, 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 and they're in fatigues. And they start acting, you know, Carolyn was just a person on the front stoop. But now she's 
playing the part of a cop, you know? And they're all talking to each other. Hutch, better come see this. Val, take a look over here. <laughs> like, come on, guys. There's, they, they, the SBI comes, and the, the lead SBI guy, you know, looks like a used car salesman. I mean, that, that, even that's a cliche, but he was. Checkered jacket, you know. Uh, you know, he's got like a Biscuitville sweet tea. He's just, he's just hanging back. He's not doing anything. We, we got two forensics. Uh, they were girls. They, they looked like they couldn't be responsible for Girl Scout cookies, let alone like the luminol they're carrying with them. It's like because they're so young. And of course, because who would do that job anyway? And I'm thinking, you know, we're, we're outgunned here. You're, you're not up for this. And the final guy they bring, they, they bring Pee Wee's septic service. <laughs> And Pee-wee is Pee-wee, right? Right? Because the first thing they want to do is we have a septic well and they they want to drain it because they think she's in there. So they're draining it and we're standing around the circle, all of us, and the brown muck is going down and down and down and down and you're just waiting until it gets to the bottom and you're going to see the crest of a skull or a femur or something and you're waiting and you're like this and down, and down, and down, and down, and down, and nothing. They come in the house with their luminol and all that, and I'm like, you're too late. I, like, I took everything. It's, it's, it's gone. It's all gone. If there was any forensic evidence, it's, it's gone. And even, like, that knife that I found, for some reason, and I don't know why I did this, everything else I took to the curb, but that knife... I took it back to Saxpaha and I threw it in the bush by the water tower. So I naturally, when I heard they, I went back and I got the knife and I put it in like a, like a brown bag. I was like, here, test it, test it. So give them the knife. They come in the house. They, go, they get to the bathrooms and I say, you know, the pee trap was, was filled with hair and gunk and bodily stuff, and the, the SBI guy turns to me and says, you didn't keep any of it, did you? <laughs> it's right here in the medicine cabinet. What are you talking about? No, I didn't keep any of it. Jeez. So, you know, finally, finally they bring out the star of the show, right? They bring out the dog. Dog comes out, and I'm expecting a bloodhound. It's actually like this really svelte German shepherd. You know, he did look kind of impressive. <laughs> and, and the guy takes this little ball and he, he, he shakes it under the dog's nose and the dog takes off and I say, what's in the ball? And he says, human flesh. I'm just kidding. You know? <laughs> Who does that? So the, the dog goes around the, the entire property and, and there's nothing. They can't find anything. So finally they go, It's time. Going under the house, going under the, into the crawl space. Open the crawl space, and it's it's one of those ones you when you walk in, it's five feet, and all the way to the back, it tapers down to like two feet. Red Carolina clay, right? And so we're in there, and the luminol, and again, and at this point, I'm fed up, and I grab the luminol bottle, and I go to the spot in the baby's room where the big brown blood, you know, a hole, and I'm like spraying, spraying, and there's, there's nothing. Um, 
we are crouching along, and I'm with Lau, and we get to, like, the back, and, you know, cinder block wall, and, like, there's a little hole in the wall, and he looks at it, and he's trying to be real, you know, I don't know, CSI or something like that, and he's like, By now, I, I catch on. I know the difference between a souvenir and a trophy and in murder speak. But even this doesn't make any sense. Because if you're a serial killer, you don't hide a trophy or a souvenir. It's a souvenir, you keep it. And I'm like, well, you know? And he didn't even get the word right. Like, he confused them. You know, called what was supposed to be. Like, I don't know if you know this, but like a, a, a trophy is a body part, right? That you keep of the victim. Souvenir is you keep a necklace, you keep an article of clothing, but you keep it, you don't hide it. So it was not making any sense. Finally, they bring the dog under the house, sniffs around, and right around like the three foot level, the dog does this. Instead, what they call it, he starts to light on something. Get the shovels. Start digging. But of course, it's Carolina clay, so you can't get anywhere. <laughs> and so the idea is if we couldn't get anywhere, he couldn't get anywhere. And what they, what they finally surmised was that Debbie had probably, because of how the dog behaved, had been there for a period of two or three weeks. He then dismembered her put her in garbage bags, disposed of her. So they're at an impasse, right? There's a pause, um, and we go on with our lives. And some of the stuff that happened in the f- coming year was was pretty bizarre. You know, I, I would get I would get their mail. They never forwarded it, the, the Dalzells. So I'd get his mail, and it was, you know, you know, chain armor and weapon magazines, you know, those magazines and stuff like that. I once got a pamphlet with a like a guy who looked like Bill Gates, and it said, how to win any woman over through hypnotism. <laughs> you know, I get you know, stale bills and stuff like that. And I'm out on the road, and, you know, neighbors are starting to wonder, you know, the events that had happened with the entourage. And, uh, one of them came over, and he's like, well, what's going on at your house, friend? And it was Paul Frelick. <laughs> <laughs> Remember the guy who... <clears throat> came from Chicago and moved, and because he had so much success, well, that was Paul. Paul lived two doors down. So I, some of you know, some of you don't. He used to run Deep Dish Theater. He was my neighbor, and you know, he was like, who is this weirdo who has moved in? You know? um, one, one neighbor told me that Andrew Delzell was a, a nice kid, but he was troubled. He said when Andrew was um, like a, about 10 years old, 
He walked up to a fellow kid in the neighborhood, stood in front of him, smiled sweetly, and then began to pummel him with a brick that he was hiding in his hand. Um, I started to have, like, really bad nightmares. Uh, you, know, you know the scene in Indiana Jones where um, they're in the crypt and somehow Marion and him get surrounded by all those corpses? And, and Well, I, I had that dream, but it was conflated with underneath. It was happening underneath my house. And it was, like, just really, really disturbing. Um, I had this dream once where all the trees around the house got blown over. And, and I was so convinced that it really, really happened that I got up in the night and I ran out of the house, it, fully expecting it to be, you know, like the day after or something, and it was untouched. My wife and I, Elizabeth, heard one night this snorting sound that we later called like the, the devil bush pig. is <laughs> this terrifying, horrific snorting. And so we both go out like with a mag light and she's behind me and we go around the house and we look and there in the distance is this animal with these two red eyes looking at us. And, you know, this is the part where I... I I don't know if that happened or it didn't happen, but it must have happened because she was with me. But what's interesting that I thought later is that's right out of Amityville Horror, right? There's a scene where they look up to the window and there's this beast with red eyes looking out the window. Um, My daughter also (laughs) was having dreams of her own. Amelia was about three or four at this time. Her bed was exactly where Dalzell's... I don't know why we didn't have the sense to at least move the bed, but she slept where Andrew Dalzell would sleep. And one morning, Amelia gets up, and she's like in her little bathrobe, and she's walking down the hall, and she goes, nope, 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 don't want that dream again. Not going to have that dream where mom and dad turn into skeletons. She had a dream, she said, where she was in the back seat in her car seat and the car was going down the road, but mommy and daddy were driving. The car was out of control. She was helpless in the back seat. She would do this thing around the house. She would be standing there and she'd go, ghost. No. Really creepy. (laughs) Really creepy. We had put crystals in the, like the, what is that, the southwest corner of, you're supposed to do it in the house, we did it in every room, like we did a sage smudging thing, and we'd find, you know, Amelia would pick them up and walk in, and we're like, not, not that one, we'll get you your own crystals, <laughs> leave that one, leave that one right, right there. Um, finally, and this is the strangest thing, and, and, uh, this absolutely happened. We were, um, we were asleep one night, and around five in the morning, there was a knock on the door, like a pounding. It was much louder, you know, like a boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. Wake up, get out of bed, start walking down the hall. Through the window, we can see the cherry top, right? Get closer, boom, 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 boom. Is everyone all right in there? Boom, 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 boom. Everyone all 
front door, glass. I can see like the state trooper's hat through it. Open the door. Elizabeth is behind me. Guy goes, sir, is everything all right in there? Ma'am, is everything all right? Yes, everything's all right. Why? Somebody called 911 from inside this house. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. True crime on A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking true crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E. So, the following summer, the police were back. But this time, they didn't bring a dog. They brought a psychic. Sid. Her name was Sid. Psychic, I called her Psychic Sid. And, and when, I, when I drove up to the house, um, there was a cameraman with her. And I thought it was like one of these Ghostbuster things where they're filming aura. or I, I don't know. I don't really understand it. And so I go up and... I, talk to Lau, and I say, what, what's with the cameraman? And he sheepishly says, well, we couldn't afford her fee, so we agreed to let her film for her reality-based TV shows. <laughs> and now you're in it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so she's, she's going around. At this point, you know, I, um, I, 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 had, I had given, as I say, given the police that knife. And so I asked them, what about the knife? And they all kind of looked at each other and said, well, it's missing. We lost it. It never got tested. <clears throat> Sid is acting all like, you know, she's, she's, acting, she's acting the part of a psychic, you know? They're like, she's really good. She's from Colorado. She worked on the Ramsey case. Who didn't work on the Ramsey case? Give me a break. And, and so, you know, and she's like going... She's going, I keep getting birds, birds. And I'm like, no shit, it's Robin Road. You know, the place is like an aviary. Of course you're getting friggin' birds. And, and she had this ring in her hand um, that she was kind of, you know, using to, I don't know, get vibes or something like that. And I, I said, what's that? And they said, well, they found it in the front driveway. They believe it belonged to Andrew Dalzell. I said, can I see it? I said, sure, I look at it. And again, there's brown stains on it. And I show her, I said, does that look like blood to you? And she says, yes, it does. And then she turns to the cops and said, did you guys ever have this tested? And they all kind of look at each other like, did you, did you, did you? You know, all of this kind of thing. I mean, this went on and on. And the guy filming, you know, um, <laughs> all of a sudden I'm in it, right? And he's sort of like, just act like you're scared. <laughs> I am scared. <laughs> He said, can, they're doing some B-roll stuff, right? He said, Mr. Alora, can you just walk up to the front door as if you're walking up to the front door? I want to walk up to the door! 
this, this went on and on. Um, they, they, Sid kept saying, you know, that um, I know she's strangled. I know she's, for some reason, she got the feeling that she was strangled, that Debbie, Debbie um, was strangled, that she wasn't on the property, that she was somewhere in the open, but they, they didn't know where. And, and again, it, it just, it stalled. It went away. I, um, I, have, I have a friend in, in Quebec. His name is Claude Poirier. And he's, he's been doing um, uh, like journalism, investigative journalism for 50 years. He's like the grandfather of it all. Very highly, highly respected. And um, there's a case that was going on in Quebec at the same time. Uh, a 16-year-old woman named Julie Cipranon Julie, uh, this took place in Terrebonne, Quebec, which is just the other side of Montreal along the St. Lawrence River. Uh, she's riding the bus home, nine o'clock at night. She gets off the bus. It's 50 meters from the bus stop to her front door. She needs to cross the street, walk through a hole in the fence, and she's at the front door. Between those 50 meters, Julie vanished completely vanished, became a huge case, her face everywhere, billboards, and, um, and they, could never, they could never find Julie. Um, finally, a, an offender named uh, Richard Bouillon on his, on his deathbed confessed that he had, Julie lived in an apartment complex, and he happened to live in the apartment above her, and he was a, he was a res- registered sex offender, but um, unlike here, where we, I, we, I can go right now and tell you who's a registered sex offender of my neighbors, but you can't do that in Quebec. Um, he confessed to her murder. He said he brought her into his house, chopped her up, put her in a hockey bag, threw her into the St. Lawrence, and that was it. And Claude Poirier's point is, he's always said to me about that case, he says, un saint de crime veut parler a crime scene speaks, but in the case of Julie, there was no crime scene, so no voice. And this, this is exactly the case with, um, with Debbie Key. Things go on. You know, I, I, I got to know Debbie's friends, um, Jason and Bill and uh, Joy Forest, I, I, they they actually found me. I had dinner with them at Jade Palace. Um, it was also interesting. Um, Sticks and Stones later became a children's resale shop called Chicken Noodle Soup. It was my wife and I's retail sh- shop. We moved into that space unknowing at the time. Um, there's a sign at Chicken Noodle Soup that says... Uh, Parking reserved for Tyler's and chicken noodle soup. It's still there. Tyler's a little, little fond of Elizabeth. Um, and if you look just over the sign, that's exactly where her car was last seen. So great friends. You know, uh, she wasn't a loose person or anything like that. I think Beth Veliket wrote an article basically saying that, that she got what was coming to her because of the, her lifestyle, because of the way she dressed. And... Uh, um, 
Debbie's mom wrote a letter to the editor that just slammed them. How dare you victim blame? How dare you do this? Um, but they were they were really you know really good good people. Um, and it's a shame that what happened to to Debbie Key because um, it just it just vanished. In 2004, they finally got Andrew Delzell, or so they thought. And it went like this. Um, he was arrested for a property crime in Carborough. He, he was at, in Greensboro at the time, but the, the crime happened in, in Carborough. So the Carborough police drove to Greensboro and picked him up. And on the hour-long journey back, they had concocted this scheme. They had a phony arrest warrant for murder, and they placed that phony arrest warrant on the seat in the back of the car next to Andrew. And then then district attorney for Orange County, Carl Fox, gave the Carborough police a piece of his stationery which was, in effect, giving them a blank check. And they wrote out this phony letter and signed Carl's name to it, saying that Carl was going to go for the death penalty, for the death of Debbie Keith. They turned to Andrew on the drive back and said, you know, you better release your conscience. And he confessed. He said he did kill her and that she was on the property and he chopped her up and he drove the body to Wilmington and threw it in a dumpster there. Now, they never read him his Miranda rights. And apart from everything else that was totally not legal about this. And, you know, Chief Hutchinson thought this was a brilliant idea. And of course, when it went to trial, Judge Barber threw it out, and Dalzell walked. Um, and I, I, you know, I liked these people a lot. I'd see Hutch in the like the Harris Teeter, and we had kids in school together. I'd see Lau, you know, I'd be doing the turkey trot Thanksgiving race, and there'd be Lau at some point, you know, directing us all. He'd say, "Hey, John. Hey, John. How you doing?" Um, but this was foolishness and incompetence on the police's part. And this slowly got me to thinking. You know, slowly I'm starting to think about my own life and my own experience. And recognizing, you know, there's some victim blaming and shaming here going on. There's criminal investigative failures going on. So this starts to churn a little bit with me. Finally they get Dalzell. Dalzell had been on the internet and they had, the police had hacked his computer and they found that he was trying to import like a Russian bride, a teenage Russian bride to be his wife. Um, and then one day, in another case, Dalzell makes, Dalzell's living in Stanley, North Carolina at this time and um, he makes contact with what he thinks is an 11-year-old girl in Buckham County he's going to go and have sex with. So he goes for the rendezvous in Buckham County and he meets up with a police officer and he's immediately arrested and he's given the max 20, 25 years, the absolute max. He's put away for this 11-year-old girl but clearly they, they 
they went after him for, for Debbie. This was in 2009. Now, the coda to this that I think is interesting is in 2008, there's the case of Ira Yarmolenko. And Ira's a 19-year-old Russian immigrant college student at UNC Charlotte. And Yarmolenko, one afternoon, she's on her way to take photographs at the banks of the Catawba. She stops at the Goodwill to leave some things. She stops at Jackson Java coffee shop to get a cup of coffee. And she's later found bound three ways. She's bound with a bungee cable, the cord from her hoodie, and one other uh, element. Very intricately bound on the banks of the Catawba River. And the police immediately arrest two local fishermen who had the misfortune of fishing that day a hundred feet away from where she was found. It's, it's a, an innocent project case now. Um, they were convicted and are serving time, or one of them is, but many believe that they're innocent, that they didn't do it. And that there's two alternative theories. One is, some people think that Ira killed herself. <clears throat> that she managed to do this intricate binding. She had 15 seconds in which to do it before she would die of asphyxiation, and that's what she did. The other theory is that someone else did it. And I would merely point out that in 2008, Andrew Delzell was living in Stanley, North Carolina, 10 miles away from the site of where Ira Yomelenko was found. And that Andrew Dalzell frequented the coffee shop where Ira had worked and had gone on her last day that she, that she lived. Gym sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox Fabric Sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our Fabric Sanitizer products. Search Fabric Sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Back to that timeline. Shortly after this, I, I, went, I went back to Quebec and became very fervent to look at my own sister's case, which had been really inconclusive. Um, so I went back to Quebec. Um, some of the first things that I discovered was, number one, in the case of drugs, the toxicological report 
there was no evidence of drugs in her system. I came to find that the coroner's report was violent death of undetermined means, which is very curious. That doesn't sound like suicide, and that doesn't sound like a drug overdose. The third thing is that there was, um, there, there was a coroner's report from the scene of the crime that had been hidden from the family. No one had ever seen it, and an investigative reporter found it. And what it said was that Teresa was found, with, when she was first found, marks of strangulation around her neck. And that had been buried and kept from the family. So this led to a lot of investigation for me. Um, I, I since discovered at that time that not only was there Teresa's case, but there had been two other unsolved homicides in the area within a 17-month period within a 19-mile radius, uh, Louise Cameron, Manon Dubay, that they remained unsolved, um, managed to have a serial geographic profile look at the, the case. Kim Rosmo, who's now a friend of mine, who, who said that, yes, there was a serial killer working in the Sherbrooke area in 1978. Police should take this very, very seriously. Since done a lot of victims' advocacy, um, put a lot of time into this, Went back to school, got my master's in justice administration up the street at, at NC State. I was the first graduate of justice administration in the program. Learned French, uh, certainly that. I have a list here. I can't remember what they all are. Started, advocated to have a cold case bureau started with the Quebec Provincial Police. Um, a lot of work. That took many years to get three investigators, then five. Last month, they announced that they were adding 25. It's going to be the largest cold case bureau, certainly in Canada, 30, 30 officers. Um, you know, when I think of all these, these things um, and how these events played out, um, they're, they're very curious. Shakespeare comes to mind, though, a lot, Right? You have Flewellen, who says fortune is a wheel, rolls and rolls, right? And I think about that a lot, that sometimes you, you hit a string of bad luck and then the wheel comes around and you're there again. Sometimes you can think of that as a spiral, right, where you're constantly revisiting events on it, like that. Tempest, we say, Sebastian says, what's past is prologue, the idea that events in the past can be prescient, they can foretell what's coming, and also events in the current time can reflect back on the past. <clears throat> I always thought that my own life, you know, with all those ways of looking at it, it kind of, my life kind of moves like this. I'm kind of always revisiting things. Um, and things are always reflecting on each other. I want to get back to the painting. Because I did tell you that it's only recently that I figured out what, why that painting was in that house. Um, January 31st this year, January 31st in Canada is, is called, like, it's, it's a mental health day sponsored by 
um, Bell Canada, the phone company, right? Bell, Bell's, the Bell's song used to be like, reach out, reach out and touch someone. <laughs> so the idea is, is like, if phone somebody who you think is in distress, you know, let them know you're all right. Bell donates a nickel to mental health or something. So on that day, Barbie Pratt emailed me. She said, hey, John, I just want you to know that I'm thinking of you. Barbie Pratt, Christopher Pratt's daughter, who's now, she's her, she's an accomplished artist in her own right. And I, I texted her back and I said, you know, Barbie, it's really weird that you would email me because your brother Ned emailed me last night. He, he sent me a poem. And then this morning he texted me again. He said, I'm sorry I sent you that poem. I was drunk. <laughs> I said, it's okay, man. That's okay. And I said, you know, Barb, it's really weird that, you know, we probably text each other maybe twice a year, like through Messenger. And they both reached out at the same time. And I, and I said, Barb, it's weird because you've been on my mind. I've been thinking about this painting of your father's. She says, which one is it? And I said, you know, it's one of those ones with all the lines. She said, John, you'd be describing anything. What you, which one is it? And, and I said, well, I don't really know. But, um, and then I tell her this story, you know, this whole story. And I, I send her to the blog where I'd written it out. And she reads it and said, that's amazing. And I tell her about this painting that had been in the house. And I'm saying to her, Barb, what's that thing in art? Like event horizon? What, what is that thing? That, what does it mean? And she's like, event horizon? And I said, yeah. And she goes, do you mean vanishing point? <laughs> and I go, yeah, you're an artist. I said, in art, what does vanishing point mean? And she says, on the canvas, it's the point on the horizon where all lines converge both imagined and literal. Thank you.
gonna bring them freedom from their pain I'm alone with a loner's point of view I've always been
True Crime on A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking True Crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E. Hi, it's Jonathan Cotton with the Good Feet Store, and you know what time of year it is. It's back to school time and time once again for all of those after-school activities. Whether it's ballet or football, drama or field hockey, band or basketball, kids' feet need to feel good. Those cleats, sneakers, or shoes for band often don't do those young feet any favors. If our kids are going to stay active and healthy, then they need good feet. That means it's also time to take your kids to the Good Feet Store. Yeah, that's right, the young ones, the kids. Bring them into the Good Feet Store and let's treat them to some personal service. Our team members will measure their feet and find the right art support for them. They can still wear the shoes they want, but they will have the support to make them comfortable now and keep their feet healthy for the future. It won't take long, and it could change their life. Go to goodfeet.com to make an appointment, or just stop by the location nearest you. The Goodfeet Store. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. 
proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. True crime on A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking true crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E.